0: We're back after a long hiatus. My name is Dan Hind. And I'm at Dan Hine on Twitter. And I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host, Tom
1: Mills. Hey, everyone. He's T.A. I am oh. at T.A. underscore Mills on Twitter. I was going to do that. Sorry, those. I thought I'd jump
0: in there. Yeah, though. I know. <laughs> now we're turning all over each other. Um, it's a very slick intro there. We haven't been on air for quite a while. and That's I think why
1: we're a bit rusty.
0: The longer we've left it, the more successful the cause of democratic media has been. So... There is a sort of homeopathic argument for our, for us having fewer and fewer episodes um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and therefore encouraging somehow by our absence the the triumph of our ideals
1: well, um, should we see what happens this week? I mean if the debate intensifies, then that will disprove your theory that's true if the critique of the BBC falls off a cliff, then I think you know it 's time for us to just wrap things up and <laughs> politely retire
0: or <laughs> well, we could just we could just publish episodes which which is silent or. Maybe uh, just sort of calming, <laughs>
1: like silence.
0: calming classical music. Um, content-free content.
1: The Radio 3 of the podcasting world.
0: Now, Tom, since we've been away, we had an amazing chat with Will Davis, which I think we both found quite overwhelming. Um, right. But since we've been away, there's been an enormous amount that's gone on, um, yeah. uh, not least in, in the zone of media reform, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit um but there has been, I think, an opening up in discussions about the media, hasn't there?
1: Yeah, I think so. um It's kind of hard to tell because if you're always having these uh discussions yourself and you're surrounded by people who I guess would be more interested than the average person, it's always you know you don't want to jump to conclusions, but it seems to me that there's been a bit of an uplift around uh conversations of Reform and particularly accusations of bias against the BBC, which has been kind of interesting. Right, I think.
0: That's, that's been a major theme, hasn't it? Both on the left and in the centre. Um, on the left, the most important intervention I think was Owen Jones's article for the Guardian, talking about the position that Andrew Neil has at the BBC, and and really raising the question of what a left wing equivalent to Andrew Neil. Would look like, and as it were, the sort of how unimaginable um, a figure um, of his nature, um, as it were, on the left, how unimaginable such a figure is in the current dispensation of the BBC. And that does raise an interesting question about the nature of balance, the nature of what the BBC means by balance, and more generally, I think what liberal media think about when they think about the zone of admissible opinion. Um, one of the first things I wanted to do was just flag up the way in which this is a, uh, a controversy or a debate that is also beginning to open up in the United States. Um, both at the Atlantic and the New York Times, that, and in, in a, just as a sort of an aside, I think the New York Times in particular plays a, a sort of quasi BBC role in US media in establishing um, a zone of, of debate. Um, and in February of of this year, James Bennett um, was recorded talking about uh, the New York Times opinion page. He's the opinion editor at the New York Times and he's he's been described or flagged up as a possible future editor of the newspaper as a whole. And he tried to do a sort of meet and greet with Times staff and talk to them about uh, the opinion pages. And he was asked about what, they, what, their, what their kind of core beliefs were. And, and he says something really interesting, which I think sheds quite a lot of light on um, the way that liberals understand balance. He said, I mean, I think we are pro-capitalism. The New York Times is in favour of capitalism because it has been the greatest engine of it's been the greatest anti-poverty programme, an engine of progress that we've seen. Um, and if you take that as, as it were, the core belief of, um, uh, uh, of the sort of centrist liberal media, it begins to explain why they are they seem to be quite relaxed about really quite unhinged conservative ideas. And in America in particular, being very comfortable, very keen to bring in anti-Trump conservatives. Um and yet uh, they're so in- inhospitable and so reluctant to entertain um ideas that one associates with Bernie Sanders and certainly anything to the left of bernie sanders um and I think something similar is going on in uh in the u k as well there's a kind of there's a sort of pro capitalist consensus within which it's possible to be on the center left and be um kind of pro-social liberalism and anti-economic liberalism to some degree, or on the centre-right, which is where it's inverted and you're against social liberalism to some degree and in favour of economic liberalism. And those those categories have become a bit scrambled um, in recent years. The New new Labour sort of infamously flirted with authoritarian social trends. Cameron talked about hugging a hoodie and, and played some sort of mood music around caring or compassionate conservatism. But what what's obviously key is this unanalyzed concept of liberalism. Um, uh, liberalism is, is a given, but it's also a kind of unexplained given. Because when people talk about economic liberalism, they're not talking about an economic liberalism that Adam Smith would have recognised. I mean, it's important to emphasise that. Um, because economic liberalism in its current form includes like really tender consideration for landlords and rent seekers of pr- precisely the kind that Adam Smith would have found um revolting and in a quite precise sense immoral um so liberalism liberalism is an exotic is, is a kind of term of art in the middle it has a very peculiar meaning but it's a meaning which passes sort of unremarked because it's it's the water within, within which all these fishes swim. Um, but this centre-liberalism centre, this centre liberalism also makes it very difficult for alternative traditions to become intelligible uh, or even commensurable. They don't really fit on any kind of spectrum, right? So you have this centre-left, centre-right cent- um, spectrum, and then there's this uh, the, um, mythical sort of zero point between the two. But if someone turns up and says, well, actually, I'm a, I'm a socialist, I have a different... Physical tradition altogether, or indeed, if you, someone turns up and says, "Well, I actually am a, I'm a democratic republican, and I don't accept any of the terms of economic liberalism," I think they're all they've all re- already been scrambled by, um, by by the as it were the propertied interest. Um, it's very difficult to articulate a debate between those traditions and and, and the liberal centre because, frankly, the liberal centre doesn't understand what they're talking about. Um, So that, I think, is part of the problem when people talk about balance, is that the the balance assumes this enormous amount of commonality between the different sort of wings uh, of admissible opinion.
1: It's funny, Uh, isn't it? I mean, in the United States, you have uh, this... uh you don't have um, an active kind of socialist politics in the same way as historically you have in Europe. So that's obviously led to a very different kind of political culture and political economy. But, I mean, even at the level of um, language that people use, liberalism in the United States, of course, just seems to denote the left. Um, There's a complete conflation of the two. And you see some of this in conservative critiques of the left, where... There's often, I mean, particularly when people talk about the BBC, I mean, I think what's interesting is that, I mean, I think you're right about the sort of function that the BBC plays in politics and the function that the New York Times plays in politics in terms of delineating um, acceptable boundaries for debate. But what's interesting about them is that, they're, you know, they're quite different beasts. I mean, it's very clear why the New York Times should be pro-capitalist. It's perhaps less clear um, why the BBC shouldn't be, which is what, you know, I think is, is what makes the, the Owen Jones piece interesting, which I, I think was slightly uh, misunderstood. But what's what's strange about these debates is that the, the the people who are having them tend to be drawn from exactly that range of opinion that you've described, wherein to the Conservatives, the Liberals are the left, and of course any, anyone beyond them is beyond the pale and beyond ridiculous. And for a long time I think, you know, the Liberals themselves had the same sort of notion of uh, the left as as being a little bit silly or self-indulgent or not serious enough and the rest of it. And what I think what is interesting is what's happening now is, of course, the the liberals or the centrist wing, which has been dominant within the Labour Party, have been sidelined. And that, I mean, we're going to talk in a bit, aren't we, about what's going on with um, Andrew Adonis and Campbell and the Blairites and their relationship with the BBC that I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. But the Owen Jones article... um, Oh, by the way, if people haven't read it yet, um, I'd imagine most people uh, listening to this probably have, but it's called, If the BBC is Politically Neutral, How Does It Explain Andrew Neil? Now this was taken as being a critique of Andrew Neil personally as, you know, his lack of professionalism or whatever. Um, but it's very clear that the central argument that Jones makes is that it would not be possible to have somebody in Andrew Neil's position known to have, have political sympathies, socialist sympathies, not liberal sympathies, socialist sympathies. Um, and it, it would not be sustainable for him to hold that position, even if as a presenter he managed to hold himself, professionally managed to interrogate both sides and all those other cliches which i think people brought up
0: mm-hmm.
1: in response to the piece um now the, so the central point that i mean jones makes in this in this article is that there is not a voice for the left in the british media and this this shouldn't be the case and Obviously, this is something that, that we've argued in one way or another mm-hmm. for a while and, and pondered as to whether this might change in the aftermath of the 2017 election. Mm-hmm. And I think we can probably safely say now that it hasn't changed. And, and most people who are closer to the media than we are, and there aren't that many of them, let's be honest, uh, Owen Jones and a handful of others, seem to have all at one point point or another said in, in, the, in the period since the, the general election. That this has, hasn't changed and may possibly have even got worse.
0: Right, and so it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, I think you and I are both interested in in developing a notion of of uh, of as it were political debate that goes beyond balance and 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 looks at different ways of articulating controversy, um, without having the idea of a kind of central arbiter. Uh, like the BBC management that decides what what is and isn't acceptable, I think one of the things that I found most sort of unforgivable, and I've talked about before, is the way in which after the crisis, the BBC really nominates the UK, UKIP as as a vehicle for popular discontent with the established order, and that that's a classic example, it seems to me, of a uh, of a self sort of identifying liberal elite giving a, an app- like an appalling sort of uh, Amount of ventilation for ideas which at the time I think were quite niche, um, and doing so really because of a certain sort of recklessness and because of a certain sort of inability to digest the idea that there might be a critique of finance capital um, that was coherent and that, that actually belonged to it like a long standing. Intellectual tradition, um, but that that all, all aside, it, like in the existing institutional architecture of the BBC, it's an interesting question to ask: like, what would a counter what would the the countervailing socialist um, equivalent of an Andrew Neil be? And the answer is, of course, it wouldn't be a person. Um, it would be a you know, it would be a collection of people, um, a diverse collection of people. Who would, who would be able, presumably, to articulate a, um, an account of the world that wasn't beholden to liberal capitalist realism, to, to coin a, a phrase. Um, and, and it would have equal airtime, right? So you'd have several hours of programming on the BBC that was broadly Corbynite in its coordinates. I mean, that, that, would, be, that would be commensurate with, with Corbyn's electoral appeal. Now I just genuinely don't understand how the BBC can look itself in the eye and say no no well, our, our coverage is balanced because like one in four of the labor people we have on is broadly okay with corbyn. I mean that yeah. seems to be that seems to be the, the I mean proportion. the other week
1: they had um I mean I, I forget who exactly was on but they had uh, a conservative mp um, an investment banker who I think had sympathies with the Liberal Democrats at one stage, um, someone from the Institute of Economic Affairs, Jonathan Friedland, friend of the show, and um, the People's Gardener, and Barry Gardener that is. and it's you know it, that that was basically how they see the political spectrum is you've got two one right two right wing liberals. Two conservatives, one um, one social, sort of broadly social conservative and the Conservative Party, one sort of batshit crazy um, free market libertarian, and then somebody who, to be fair, I mean, I really like Barry Gardner, but he doesn't—he's not a core Corbynite in the sense that he's moved to the left under the leadership. And I mean, so I'm not at all saying that he shouldn't have been a representative of the left there, but he's—he's he's hardly. Um, I don't know that he he is long identified as a socialist, for example. And I think in a way, um, yeah, what you were saying about the programming, I mean... The, the weird thing is that the, the the way in which the kind of, um, let's say, populist right-wing um, editorial policy, which manifests itself with having repeat appearances of Farage on Question Time, for example, which is what a lot of the centrists have focused on recently mm-hmm. in their criticism of the BBC, the way that that's justified, of course, is, is first of all uh, a broad electoral support for UKIP, mm-hmm. Which did exist at one stage, even if it didn't manifest itself in um, electoral victories. Mm-hmm. But also a response to, uh, let's call them legitimate concerns, which is what they became described as in the political system. And the weird thing is that, you know, in t- in terms of editorial policy, I mean, okay, we could perhaps the left should be pushing for more representation. Should shouldn't perhaps the the left should be demanding more representation on these political punditry programs Mm -hmm. but really what we should be having is more programming that's going to respond to the legitimate concerns of people about power in this country and Mm -hmm. the inequality and the influence that the big banks and vested interests have over over politics the difficulties that people have in terms of housing in terms of um living standards in terms of the proliferation of food banks, these are the, the uh, destruction of the NHS, um, the uh, pushing towards war at every given opportunity. These are the kinds of basic legitimate concerns that underline the, the rise of Corbynism that have never had a representation in BBC programming. I mean, if you, you know, there's been good work by Mike Berry looking at austerity in terms of how the um response to the financial crisis was reported by the bbc and the patterns are very clear Mm -hmm. and i think going back to what you're saying about the representation of ukip on the bbc and the balance between conservative and liberal opinion i mean i think that's spot on and i think i more or less argue something similar in the book when it comes to the um the rightward drift of the bbc particularly from 2008 which is that they for them the sort of Farageism is an opportunity to address sort of populist i don 't like the term populism but you know what I mean sure. um, concerns which them, which don 't trust don 't touch on that that basic political pro capitalist political consensus and i, I think that 's definitely what was going on and where did this actually end up I mean it ends up with i don 't think we mentioned this at the the star but the the Enoch Powell documentary which caused the a huge um, a barrage of criticism at, at the BBC that was, I think, it was led by um, Amal Rajan, wasn't it, who presents um, the BBC's version of Media Democracy, the, the copycat media story.
0: Yeah, their pay, li- pay limitation and copycat yeah. version.
1: Um, so I don't know. We we don't really have time to go into the controversies around uh, Enoch Powell, uh, racism and debates around freedom of speech. But maybe right. if uh, we could we could potentially do that next week, maybe uh, listen to the show and, and come back and talk about that stuff in more depth. But I think in terms of understanding how the BBC got to where it is today. Um, I think I, I completely agree. I think there there was a sense among in the, amongst the BBC leadership and amongst the BBC that there was a need that they were losing the audience, that, that there was a general discontent and anti-political impulse. Yeah. And where did they go with that? They didn't go down a sort of left wing um, analysis. They went with uh, racism instead. And um, you know it's kind of a, a truism. This is what happens during periods of economic crisis. But it seems to have played out. I think in in our current kind of moment, don't you think?
0: Well, right. And I think what's often missing in this in this sort of the rightward drift in crisis story is the extent to which liberal elites collaborate in that rightward drift. Like, I mean, power consists in the ability to choose which criticisms you take on board or which criticisms you give legitimacy to and the BBC kind of revels in the idea that it's it's a hotbed of leftism it revels in the idea that it's so oh look we're such a naughty bunch of trots aren't we right and therefore it wanted it wanted UKIP's analysis it wanted someone to say oh you're you're a bunch of effete metropolitan left-wingers right who don't represent the real salty folk of England, right? They like that criticism. It, 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 they get off on it. They think it's brilliant. They don't want to hear some sour-faced leftist saying, "You fuckers, you're all you're you're wedded to capitalism, and you, you're your vaunted liberalism is a sham." Right? They didn't want to hear that in two thousand and seven. They wanted to hear someone tell them that they were, um they were too awesome. They were too. Liberal. I'm not
1: sure that they want to hear that now, to be honest, Dan
0: they yeah clearly and but again like it's worth i think it's as a thought experiment as you it's worth thinking about what balanced coverage would mean if the 40% of the electorate that voted for corbyn were given adequate representation um and it wouldn't mean a couple more Um, left-wing firebrands on the sofa talking about the daily papers, you're right, it would have implications for formats. It would have implications for the kind of programming. It would have implications for the ways in which ideas might be developed, which weren't so kind of bite-sized. They weren't so kind of like this theatrical, gladiatorial interviewing style. It was actually thought-driven and which was actually able to reflect on um, the communicative form itself. It was able to engage with people like in, you know, just like like the BBC preens itself on the fact that John Berger, you know, produced Ways of Seeing for them. It was a miracle that got produced. If you look at the the history of its production, but you could imagine political programming that that played with and that engaged the listener or the or the viewer in the ways that he did, but 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 acting in. In spheres like housing, spheres like the economy, and so on. Um, it's a, it's a tantalising tantalizing prospect, um, but it, and I think it's worth reflecting on why it's completely un, unimaginable um, in the current order of public service broadcasting. Um, so we've talked a bit about... I was going to talk about The Atlantic, but I don't think we, we really need to. There's not, not much else to be said about that, just to flag up that um, The Atlantic briefly hired a guy called Kevin Williamson... As part of its attempt to um, turn itself into a big tent for ideas and argument. Um, the author there said, I would love to have an idea section filled with libertarians, socialists, anarcho-pacifists, and theocons, in addition to mainstream liberals and conservatives all arguing with each other. Having said this, sort of a set of St. stool for you know rampant pluralism, he then ran off and hired a guy called Kevin Williamson who's just said some off the chain things. Like, saying that women who have abortions should be arrested and tried for murder and all kinds of racist crap as well. And um, it's just amazing, right, that someone can say that they want anarcho-pacifists and socialists and so on, but they end up hiring um, a right-wing kind of extremist. Who then? Luckily, need-
1: I subscribe to the cock-up version of history where nothing has any significance for anything. Well we can never draw any conclusions from any decision made by any institution. That's just not it's just not how the world works then.
0: Right, but it's interesting that there was a kind of theoretical zone of controversy that he was willing to entertain where he would hire anarcho pacifists and socialists. And, <laughs> yes, and then there least, was the yeah, real it, 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 controversy it, 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 he thought
1: that's something that he might do. Yeah.
0: And then there's the real controversy where he thought he'd just hire a right-wing troll um and then and then he kind of and then he has to fire him like a few days later or he, like when it becomes obvious that he's just said just horrendous things all the time um so uh enough of the travails of um balance but let's talk a bit more about the centrists and their recent discovery of reality the um, centrists this is this is exactly in britain we've had andrew donas um begin what I can only describe as a Twitter jihad against the BBC. Um he's turned from being sort of sort of nuzzling in the bosom of, of centrist common sense to feeling like an outcast. Tom, what's yeah. going on there?
1: It's funny, isn't it? Like there was this um, there was actually there was an article uh in the New Statesman um of all places um, which was about um, this campaign that Andrew Donis has launched against the BBC, which is kind of funny because, I mean, yeah, he, he just launches into these like ongoing Twitter tirades, and it's obviously annoyed the BBC and The Guardian and the rest of them much more than, you know, I think Owen Jones ever could. And, and so there's this piece which went up, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, at uh, the New Statesman, called "Inside the Brexit Broadcasting Corporations: How Remainers Turned on the BBC," and and it's all about uh, Andrew Donis and <coughs> Alastair Campbell's another who have kind of broken this taboo in liberal circles by saying that you know calling out the BBC for a right wing bias uh, in favour of Brexit and um, saying it was it's censoring. Or not reporting on things which are going to make Brexit look bad because of its, I suppose, from it, because of its proximity to the government, because of pressure from the right wing press and all of the rest of it. Um, but yeah, what's uh, what's what's kind of funny about it is that it, in the article they talk about what the what the trigger was for this campaign beginning, and uh, Adonis and the, goes on this. Um, this anti-Brexit march, which was, you know, very very well attended, and of course the BBC doesn't report on it, but some other media do. Now, if for listeners who have ever been on um, on on any marches, they know that this is completely, you know, it's completely standard practice for the BBC to ignore any political mobilisations of this guy. I mean, anything anyone's ever been on, like anti-war marches or marches, you know, in defence of the NHS or or, or anything. Um, it's it's usually a, people think, oh my God you know you're surrounded by tens of thousands of people you have all the energy and you think how could the the media possibly ignore this you get home and then you look on the BBC and you find that there's a tiny report somewhere in its local news section and usually you know it might have been reported by ITV or Sky or something like that and maybe maybe it appears somewhere else online like the Huffington Post or whatever anyway um, after this March, the, the centrists just couldn't believe that they had been on such a huge mobilization that had been um, ignored by the BBC. And it was a sort of Damascus moment for them. And since then, you know, uh, they've crossed the Rubicon. And, uh, yeah, that's that's when it all started, really. Which is, it, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because, well, I, I don't know if it's funny, but, like, it's... For, for those of us who have been involved in um let's say extra parliamentary politics this would be exactly what we'd expect from the bbc you know sure. for the last two decades
0: sure and this is i mean this is the this is the point isn't it is that the the bbc really takes its coordinates from from parliamentary opinion um and the way that it synthesizes or makes sense of parliamentary opinion is a is a very kind of a, opaque process um and we've talked already about the way in which the, some, the massive popular support for Corbynism, the fact that Corbyn is is the head of the Parliamentary Labour Party, doesn't really filter into the BBC's calculations in anything like the way you might expect it to, if their kind of if the, as it were their official doctrines um, were 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 as watertight or as kind of mathematical in their precision as they like to make out. Um, but nevertheless, on something like Brexit. Labour and Labour leadership and the Conservative, DUP coalition government, are as one in accepting the decision of the referendum, and they are all in public um, committed to some form of Brexit. And the BBC, in these conditions, I think is is kind of committed by its by its doctrine to be just, you know, obviously to give voice to a degree of Brexit opinion, um, but it's not going to go out on a limb and report discontent with Brexit um, in any way that it might think of as being disproportionate. Um, and this, I think, has come as an enormous shock to people like Adonis, who have been inside that, that sort of parliamentary consensus uh, throughout their career. I mean, if you think of... If you think of the, sort of the BBC's idea of common sense in the early 80s, mid-80s, um, it was in things like the SDP. It was in the idea of a kind of re, you know, revived centrism where I think Andrew Donis began his political career. Um,
1: Do you know, um, I, I was never able to find this quote, but I remember ages ago speaking to a journalist who said that Tony Benn um, described the B, BBC as the SDP at prayer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. there is a there is a sense that 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 there, there is a real affinity there. You know, they're not. You know, they don't like the sort of the fuddy duddy bits of liberalism. But the, the SDP sounds shiny and new. And Shall and we just
1: and, explain to listeners what what that is, by the way? Cause some people.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, do you want to or shall I? You can. You can. Um, so in the early eighties, uh, Labour, Labour seemed to be um, heading in a leftward direction. I mean, it's a very, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a period that really rewards study, um, but essentially a group of people on the Labour right, so-called Gang of Four, um, which is Roy Jenkins, uh, Shirley Williams, um, David Owen, and the other one who everyone forgets, was it Ted Rogers? Um.
1: I actually have forgotten the other one. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I
0: think Ted Rogers may have represented 321, um, he may have been a quiz host. Um. Anyway, that leaving that aside, they they essentially split from Labour. They create a new party and contest which one is it? The nineteen eighty three election, yeah, and um, make a major contribution to uh, Labour's electoral catastrophe in that election. They don't win many seats. They set out to break the mold of British politics. Um, but they managed to take a lot they split of the left
1: vote, don't they? They split and I the left vote. Um, didn't wasn't Polly Toynbee a candidate in that election? Do you know, um, I believe she was. I believe she um, was. Who, which brings us back to this thing about who are the left, and it's, uh, I think occasionally you do see conservatives absolutely convinced that Toynbee is on the left because she's at the Guardian. Because I remember that when there was this big sort of. Um, hoo-ha on Twitter about Owen Jones I mean, people hate Owen Jones don't they on the right but there was a big um, hoo-ha about it and somebody said oh um, yeah of course the BBC would never hire anybody on the left like Polly Toynbee oh no she was their social affairs correspondent in the 80s just like oh okay so you know in your head yeah. uh, the presence of Polly Toynbee is evidence of you know the BBC's oh, left wing politics I mean but that's that's the thing isn't it what does a left-wing um, Andrew Neil look like? It does not look like Polly Toynbee, does it?
0: No, no, it really doesn't. And, and it's, sorry, I
1: went a bit off tangent there. No, we were talking about the SDP. we were talking about SDP
0: as as it was the BBC at prep. Um, yeah. So uh, this was, and and it does have a resonance now because, and I think this is worth, worth a bit of a, um, a, a, a a sort of detour because there was there was um, an article in, I think, the Observer while we were on hiatus, um, where someone was basically saying, I've got 50 million quid if anyone wants to have a go setting up a sexual Oh, my God, respirator. so much
1: has happened. Right. <laughs> and I've like, even forgotten that. I forgot and all about the... That was uh, really... The that millionaires was, um, uh, advert wanting some
0: yeah, support. Yeah, exactly. Like, good sense of humour, seeking, <laughs> seeking, like, mercenary MPs for mutual fun. And, like, the... Like the, attached. The, <laughs> like the, the interesting thing about that was like, if you can plausibly tell a newspaper that you've got 50 million quid to spare, they could just publish an article by you, right? There was nothing in that article except I've got a load of money or I've got a load of mates who've got loads of money and we've, we're willing in theory to spend it on like basically derailing
1: Corbynism. What are you talking um, about that? So that was a scoop, then. It's, was, right, but like, it's, it the, use, it's it a the useful absurd?
0: like benchmark. Like when people say, "Oh, money doesn't buy you media power; it doesn't buy you media influence." It's like if you've got, even if you don't spend that kind of money, even if you just say you've got it, you get to be on. on the, do you pages mean, of do the you think term. the journalists were like, "Can we see the fifty million pounds,
1: please?" And he was like, "No, no you we, can't we see need to it. Check our sources.
0: You can't see it." But look at me. Look at the state of me. Look how confident I am. <laughs> <laughs> Look how ridiculously was it, was out the, of touch Was I
1: am. it The Observer or The Guardian? I mean, not that it probably matters that much. I think but it was. I, I, think it I, was, I, just think, I still get the sort of sense that The the Observer's worse when it comes to this sort of centrism stuff.
0: I think it was The Observer. I do. I At do. some
1: point, we need to do a whole show on the politics of The Guardian or possibly The Observer. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? it I mean, it's like the BBC, when we're coming, coming back to that thing of like American centrism and the New York, New York Times... I mean the Guardian is supposed to be a not profit newsgroup, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not supposed to actually be pro capitalist. I mean theoretically. I mean obviously it's linked to profit making corporations, but it should be a very different beast, as it were, to Well right. So market. I mean, you know, one But of, it's not, is it? It's exactly the same. One of
0: the one of the ideas that floats around on the left is this, this idea that well if if the media was dominated by non profits then it wouldn't have the same sort of ideological c- kind of commitments that the profit- making corporations have and there's a degree of truth to that but what it overlooks I think is the extent to which these these institutions operate within society and they take their cues the rebellionian takes its cues from from uh, from parliamentary elites and from corporate and financial elites and and the the ways in which it takes those cues is quite complicated it's partly to do with a shared educational background um the i mean what i understand about the editorial guardian the the editorial culture of the guardian is, is very much like a kind of no holds barred mixed martial arts version of an oxford tutorial (laughs) <laughs> right, and now it's, everyone's greased up, and they're desperate to kick the shit out of everyone with the like the repost stuff right and that sounds and, awful I yeah, know it just does sound dreadful um but but I think there there's a sense in which that that kind of that sort of intellectual class elitism um that self identifies as liberal self identifies as being as as it were as left as is practicable. You know, these kind of this idea about pragmatic idealism. Um, these people, I think, are deeply conformist, and they do think that when they chat to their mates who went into banking, they think that they're getting the kind of main line on how how the real world works, and as it were, how the world has to work. Um, so I, I think it's I think it you know it, it, it warrants much more close study than that. And if there are any listeners who've been involved in The Guardian and would like to talk to us, either publicly or um off the record, uh, we could also like we could disguise your voices like you know, like proper journalists.
1: Yeah, we could definitely do that. We would um, totally be we, love, we we love to well. interested into what insights into what goes on in The Guardian. I actually don't think there's any sort of scholarship that's looked into this. I mean, there. I, I do, I forget what it was called, but there was this ethnographic study of the New York Times that came out a couple of years ago. I don't think there's anything similar on The Guardian. And what's interesting about The Guardian, I think, I mean, this question of, okay, does the model of ownership, um, is, is that significant? I mean, I think it, it may be, because say what you will about The Guardian, it has a rather different politics to... Um, you know, the the other sort of liberal media like the BBC and The Independent, because it's not a socialist paper, it's a liberal paper, but it does have socialists writing there. Um, That could be because it's well unionised, and it could be because it's of the different political culture in Britain, Um, it could be something to do with the History of the Guardian, um, or it could be a, a mix of these things, but it's, yeah, in the same way as that sort of classic phrase of the Labour Party, a party with socialists in it. I mean, you could say the same thing about The Guardian, couldn't you? I mean, it's got Owen Jones, um, Monbiot, um, am I pronouncing that right? I never know how to say his name. Is it Monbiot or Monbiot? I think it's uh, George
0: Monbiot.
1: Monbiot? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Monbeau, That's how I've always. Gary but... Young, adita Barte. I mean, I don't know if they'd describe themselves as socialists, but I mean, they're definitely, uh, they're very much left, um, I'm sure,
0: and you know, and you know, someone like Larry Elliott is, I think, you know, is on is
1: on the left, and, uh, and he's not, you know, he's not straightforwardly. Yeah, is sort of, a, is he like a sort of Keynesian type, is
0: he? Yeah, yeah, I think he's, and you'd be, you could be reasonable to calling him a left Ke- Ke- Keynesian. Um, so yeah, it's true that it's true that it's not. Don't get me wrong; I'm not trying to sort of draw equivalents between it and the Murdoch press or Daily Mail or something.
1: Um well, as well, I was more thinking of compar- comparing it to the New York Times, you know whether there's a difference there in terms of because in a way, our equivalent of the New York Times should be The Times, which you know we could do another show on as well because I mean the absolute state of that paper is just incredible, but um you know The Times and the Telegraph they used to be papers of record in the same way that the New York Times holds itself up as being um you know, that we just don't have that in this country. But I, I was just thinking that the Guardian is to the left of the New York Times. And it's an interesting question as to why why that's the case. You know, can we find the explanation in political economy, um, distinct source relations, uh, different educational system, like you were saying, um,
0: you know, think, and, I mean, and think, to what
1: extent are think, these different things in play? I mean, I would be fascinated to see some work on that.
0: I think if, look, I mean, I think if 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 you have an editorial culture where having been to Oxford but you haven't been to Balliol makes you a kind of scrappy outsider, um, <laughs> I think that is a I think there is that will tend to push you towards some form of accommodation with a a, a general a general elite culture in England which is like has become incredibly comfortable with and defensive about massive inequality, right? So I, I, I do think that, that, the as it were, the, the sort of educational background has probably had a, a conservative influence to some extent. The fact, though, is that their audience has always been... Um, uh, it's been an audience with a lot of socialists in it, um, particularly in the public sector. And I think that the way that they've managed that is by having some left-wing... and Like, un- un- uncompromisingly left-wing voices on the comment pages... Um, and, of course, famously, Seamus Meln was um common editor there for, for many years. Um, but the I think the editorial spine of the newspaper has be, always been um, uh, much more comfortable with the uh, status quo, and much more comfortable with the rightward drift of the status quo, I think, um, than then its, then it's um, ownership structure might sort of lead you to suspect. But anyway... Um, we haven't thought about that. I haven't thought about that in advance, so um, you can ignore everything I've said so far. Um, <laughs> we are. We've done. So we've done Balance, we've done the Revolt of the Centrists. I mean, where do we think the Centrists are going to go with this? Are they just going to whine about BBC, or do you think that they could be. Could they be brought on board to a broader reform agenda?
1: It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, because, you know, the, because Centrists are slightly. I was going to say unhinged but that doesn't sound very nice because because the political ground is shifting so much and i wouldn't actually have predicted the centrists to go for the bbc in the first place it's it's kind of hard to know where they're going to go with this stuff i mean i i think it would be a real departure for the centrists to, to to embrace the sort of um reform agenda which we think the left should be um picking up which would be one of uh, yeah, removing the um, the BBC from the polit- from political control and bringing it into civil society and uh, decentralising it and democratising editorial decision making and funding and all of the rest of it, all the things that we talked about in previous episodes. I mean, I would love it if some centrists got on board and started engaging seriously with those ideas. Um, that would be great. The thing is, I I think I mean m- maybe you're. I, I get the sense that you're very sceptical about the potential um, for, let's say, people be B- certain people at the BBC, but also centrists, to to break with a um, kind of technocratic common sense. Is that fair to say?
0: I don't know. I just genuinely, I just don't think. I don't think I know enough, really. Um, I mean, my sense with the people at the BBC is they're very busy. Um, the people ones I know are very busy. They're very professional. They take, take their jobs very seriously. They don't really give much thought to the structures in which they're working, um, nor I think do they feel that they have any particular freedom to think about those structures. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to bear in mind is the extent to which people who work in institutions are really hemmed in by them. Yeah. Um, they can't really say very much on the record about how they operate. If they do, it's often part of a process of exiting the institution because it's, you know, it's part of a a process of disenchantment. It's very, very, very difficult to speak out about conditions psychologically, I think. Um, yeah,
1: I, I think that's definitely true in the case of the BBC. I mean, I think it's it's strange the extent to which people, when they're there, hold to a very hard-line position, um, when, particularly on questions of impartiality and bias, which can be, you know, people seem much more comfortable discussing once they've retired or, or developed some sort of distance from the corporation. But even then, people are very uncomfortable saying things publicly, which is why it's very interesting that um, Adonis and Alastair Campbell, of all people, has um, started this kind of campaign against the BBC. But going back to these liberals and, and what they want from the BBC, I mean, it's just not clear at the moment. Um, it, it's very much tied to a particular political strategy around Brexit and doesn't seem to be tied to a sense of uh, institutional reform or or any real sense that perhaps the thing that's brought us to the point of Brexit is a certain discontent with institutions. And I think it would—what would be—what would be, I would welcome from the Liberals would be more sort of acknowledgement, and particularly the Blairites. I mean, Andrew Adonis and um, Al- Alistair Campbell are just, you know, arch Blairites. Um, some acknowledgement that the sort of politics that they've been espousing has actually brought us to this point of uh of just dis- political disaffection which was a big driver behind um behind the vote and it just seems to me that there's that there's not yet any signs of that kind of institutional thinking um i don't know, if, I don't know but i certainly wouldn't expect any kind of serious um engagement or insight out of campbell Um, i think he's just an awful person and he is basically a very cynical political strategist you know he's just not interested in those kinds of questions Um, but could other centrists be brought on board with some sort of consensus with the left i mean i suppose historically speaking you know what was labor in the post-war social democratic period was an alliance between um, liberals and working class movement, wasn't
0: it? Yes, I yeah. think that's. I think that's right. I think it's all. It's always had that, that dual character, um, and it's always had a slight. There's always been a slight sort of theatricality about it because the liberals have, have really largely controlled uh, the Labour Party while telling the Socialists that, oh, if only they could, if only they could do more, if only it was electorally possible. To go further, um, and I think it's great. Right, we should emphasise, I think, that, right, there is widespread disenchantment with the existing social and economic order, and it's it, it's going in two ways. It's either going into socialist hope or it's going into nihilistic hate. Right, that is increasingly um, the the paths that the that these energies are flowing down, and at the moment, liberals, frankly, are not putting their weight on the scales of socialist hope,
1: right? You know what? Um, I've not really looked at this, but I did see on Twitter Andrew Adonis is doing some sort of tour of the country, talking to people about their concerns or something. So you never know. I mean, maybe some some of these um, Blairites and centrists, some of the more cerebral ones, might be more questioning of their politics and of the direction the country's gone in. But, you know...
0: Well, fingers crossed. I mean, like... At the moment, we are in this very strange position, I think, where you, have a, you do have a liberal intelligentsia um, found in so-called le- centre-left think tanks like Demos um, and other places, which are reasonably well-funded, um, that seem to be like, determined not to engage in articulating what, what a Corbyn programme might look like. Like, it's almost like they've got their fingers in their ears, and they don't don't want to accept that that politics has changed, and that their their appropriate position is as an auxiliary to a like a dynamic, creative left wing politics, right? I, I of all people, I you know I do, th- I you know it's important that we think constitutionally. It's important that we think in terms of human rights and so on, like. The liberal tradition has something to offer, something important to contribute, right? But at the moment, it's just a kind of dead weight. It's just like denying the, the reality on the ground, which is that change is going to come. Um, and it's up to us all to decide whether we want change to take the form of more Farageism, um, or it's going to take some to form something like Corbynism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm making a sort of... I'm probably making a point that's been made thousands of times in these discussions around centrism, but it does seem a bit strange that a group of people who define themselves by pragmatism don't seem to be able to get to grips with the current political um, terrain.
0: Right. Well, it is so. You know, it's so obtrusive. Like, it's so clear that something is something. There is movement. You know, and we're seeing around the world that this movement is not always to the good. Right. And again, this like. Liberals go... Like, they spend their lives kind of life-action role-playing about what they would have done in the 30s or what they would have done in the Second World War. And right now, it looks to me like what you would have done is just fucked everything up and let the fucking Nazis win. Um, so, um, that is my... I think we can invoke Godwin's Law, can't we? I've I mentioned... think we have to draw
1: a line, Andrew. <laughs> you've, you've... yeah... You, you, you've um, got there Nazism, that's, that's the end of that, I think.
0: Got into the Nazism thing.
1: Um, so that asks us a question of whether um, liberals are potential allies of the left, thing.
0: Well, I think they have a historic opportunity to right past wrongs,
1: is what yeah, I'm saying. Okay. So, what, having called them Nazis... No, I didn't Nazi say they were Nazis. Writers, I didn't say they were Nazis. Olive Branch.
0: I said or they French. were hapless Nazi enablers. Uh, <laughs> I didn't call them Nazis. Um... But, uh, yeah, well, I think we've covered, we've covered the main things. Final points to sort of note in these last few weeks. Everyone's got a podcast. Um, podcast production is ramping up. Um, when we entered the market, it was crowded already, but it's becoming, uh, like, oppressively so. Um, if your tastes run that way, you can listen to Nick Clegg interviewing Nigel Farage um, on his new podcast. Um, but if you prefer the sublime to ridiculous, uh, you can check out friend of the show, Alex Doherty's, is it Doherty or Doherty?
1: I, it's Doherty. Doherty. Uh, and the only reason I know that, despite being, um, friends of Alex is that he mentions his surname on the actual podcast, which I have listened to. Nice.
0: Anyway, he's got I've, a new podcast. I've never known
1: how to pronounce it, but you don't, you don't generally use people's surnames that much in real life, do you? No, you don't you don't. Uh, that's it's politics. Uh, what's What's that called? Sorry, it's called... Uh, theory. Politics theory. Other, isn't it? Politics theory. Other. I, think I a... don't get that. What does the other bit mean? I think it's it refers to the category, as in miscellaneous.
0: Yeah, I guess.
1: Yeah. I wondered if it might be a, that's kind of orientalist type thing, you know, like um the other.
0: <laughs> I don't know, mate. I don't know. And, Possibly. If you
1: listen, get in touch, please, and and um. Explain so,
0: yourself. I, Yeah, Um, is there anything else you want to mention before we sign off
1: I don't think so Um, just that you know thanks for listening and um, we will be back hopefully in a week and we'll try and do this weekly occasionally you know uh, it will be fortnightly Um, sometimes we we, we'll be back with another show so um, thanks for listening and um, sorry the media's been so horrendous these last few weeks Um, you know Maybe, maybe it just needs to get get really bad at the BBC before it gets better. So going accelerationist.
0: Yeah, now you're starting to sound like one of those f- communists in the '30s. Uh, I, yeah. d- I think that's now. Enjoy your Morrissey. Enjoy your Manic Street <laughs> pe- Preachers. Manic Street Preachers have no heroes, my friends. No heroes, no gods, because they will let you down. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Tom, it's been a pleasure as Emma. And we'll see you probably next week, but definitely soon. Yeah, bye everyone.